Turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Matthew. We're picking up in Matthew, and we're going to backtrack a bit and begin our text with Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, but we'll be looking mainly at the first 12 verses of chapter 14. But the end of Matthew 13 really uh, is one unit with 14. Uh, You'll remember that chapters and verses weren't there when Matthew wrote this. (laughs) So uh, they help us find our place in in the Bible, but but don't let them uh, define for you the divisions uh, of uh, Matthew's thoughts. So really, I think you'll notice as we begin in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, and read through 14, uh, verse 12, I think you'll see the the connection between uh, the end of 13 and the beginning of 14. So let's hear uh, together this word of the Lord for us this day. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised her with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This uh, gruesome episode that uh, Matthew relates in chapter 14 Uh, is very characteristic of the Herodian dynasty. Now, it's a little hard to keep all the Herods in mind. Uh, They they use the name Herod a lot. (laughs) And so it's confusing when we're reading the scripture accounts. Now, which Herod is this? Uh, I don't know what possessed my father to name his first son, William Thomas, and then to start another family and name another son, William Thomas. (laughs) 
but that's going to be very confusing to genealogists. And something like that sort of is at work uh, with, the, with the Herod in, in our text. Now, if, if you hear the name Herod, usually what Herod do you think about? Yeah, the Herod that, that had the infants killed in Bethlehem. But that's not the Herod we're looking at here. Okay, that one was Herod so-called the Great. Now, he wasn't called Great because he was a great guy, okay? He was vicious. He was vicious. In fact, one of the uh, emperors said of Herod at one point, uh, you'd be better off to be Herod's pig than his son because he killed members of his own family who he thought threatened his rule. He's called great because he did a lot of big building projects. Very powerful king. He has multiple marriages. And one of those marriages uh, gives birth to Herod Antipas, who is the Herod that is in our account now. So this is Herod, the son of Herod the Great. And, And he has a brother by another wife of Herod's. I know this is going to get confusing. (laughs) So he has like a half-brother, Philip, and, and one of their nieces is named Herodias. And that niece, Herodias, marries her great uncle Philip and then divorces him And Herod divorces his present wife, Herod Antipas, the one in our story, so that Herod and Herodias can get married. Okay, so that kind of thing went on in this family. So that's the couple we're looking at here, Herod and Herodias. Now, this couple doesn't have as much power as Herod the Great. When Herod the Great died... The Romans, who really called the shots at this point, didn't trust any one of the sons of Herod to take his place, and so they split up his kingdom. So that's why this Herod is called there in verse 1 of chapter 14, Herod the Tetrarch. In other words, technically he's not a king. Now he gets called king, I'm sure he enjoyed getting called king, but technically he's sort of a sub-king. But that's the Herod that we're talking about. And it's that Herod who imprisons John the baptizer. Because John doesn't pull any punches when he's preaching. And he brings the word of God to bear on every situation that he encounters. Now, Herod uh, sort of pretends to be Jewish. Okay, he's... He's got some Jewish blood in him through, uh, through Herod the Great's marriage to a Hasmonean princess. But he's not really a, a bona fide Jew. Uh, devout Jews hate him. But he likes to, he, he likes to play the game. He, he likes to pretend to be a believer, at least. Uh, but because of that, perhaps, uh, John the Baptist says, well, if you claim to be a Jew, if you claim to be one who respects God's law, then you ought to confess that what you've done 
And divorcing your wife and marrying your brother's wife is against God's law, and indeed it, that precise act is condemned in the Old Testament scriptures. Well, Herod, Herod then is faced with a situation where one of his subjects is calling him out. In effect, in effect, sort of talking rebellion, right? I mean, I mean, you just don't say this kind of thing to a king, to one who rules over you as an autocrat, uh, to one who doesn't hesitate to execute people. Well, Herod has John arrested, but notice in our text that phrase in verse 3, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Seems like, reading between the lines there, we have Herodias pressuring Herod, don't we? Uh, she, is, she is a vicious woman, and she doesn't like being corrected by this no-account prophet, this commoner with no social standing at all. And so it would seem that she's putting pressure on him. And that gives us the first occasion to, to notice that for all his authority, for all his power, Herod is really a fearful guy. Okay. He's basically a coward. Now, just because a person is in a position of power doesn't mean that they're, that they're not cowardly. And Herod fits that bill perfectly. Everything he does in this whole episode, if you stop and think about it, is motivated by his fear of someone. So he's afraid of his wife. He doesn't want, doesn't want her nagging him, doesn't want her on his case all the time, and so he... He arrests John. Now, he knows she really wants him executed. But he can't quite bring himself to do that because he's afraid of somebody else. Right? Right there in our text. He feared the people, verse 5. He fears the population. I mean, John is a popular figure among the common people. People have been flocking to his preaching. Uh, he's been calling people to repent, and many people have responded to that call to repentance and been baptized by him. He's afraid of the people. One of the other accounts of, of this episode in the New Testament seems to imply that, he, that he's really sort of afraid of John, too. He keeps calling him out of his cell to speak to him. There, there, there seems to be sort of an underlying awe behind behind Herod's relationship with John, like he's, he, he's, he, he has the sense that this guy is something unusual. This guy sort of has a, has a connection with God. And so he's, he's really fearful of John, too. <laughs> he's fearful of everyone. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? And yet, how, isn't that typical of, of the human race? Don't we have that tendency to be fearful of what people, other people think of us all the time? 
Now, I, I taught teenagers in, in the school setting for several years, and occasionally we talk about peer pressure. I talk about peer pressure with them, and one of the things I'd say to them is, you know, everybody talks about peer pressure relative to you guys, you teenagers. But let me tell you, I see peer pressure just as, as much in operation in older people. I've seen people in their 60s and 70s do things they knew were wrong because of peer pressure. <laughs> so part of that was to warn those young people, you know, you're going to be dealing with peer pressure all your life. <laughs> The sooner you learn how to deal with it, the better. We're all subject to that, aren't we? Herod is fearful. He's a fearful guy. Now contrast that with John. I think Matthew's account here purposely invites us to contrast these two, these two men. John is fearless. <clears throat> fearless. He, he is willing to speak against the political powers that rule his land. He doesn't hesitate to call sin, sin, and to call people to repentance. What, why is he fearless when he in a political sense and a social sense is powerless and Herod who is so powerful politically and socially is afraid well I'm sure you've already come up with the answer in your own heads it's because of his faith it's because of his faith that's what makes the difference and you're going to be either a person of fear or a person of faith now, now, John's faith isn't perfect. Okay? Don't, don't get me wrong here. Okay? I'm not saying that he was, he, he was perfect and that perfection in faith is expected of you. You're, you'll remember just, just a little while ago in, in, uh, in John's gospel, uh, after P John was put into prison, uh, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus. Uh, here he is languishing in prison. He'd expected that Jesus was going to act to bring in the kingdom of God, to judge sin. And, and instead he's languishing in prison. I mean, that's a tough thing, even for a person of faith. Uh, you're going to be in situations in life. And even, even if you're a person of faith, those situations are going to be tough. They're going to be trying. They're going to push you. And, and, and I mean, just imagine how imprisonment, how bad that would be for John. Here's a guy who's lived outside all his life. He's used to being outside, living, on, living off the land. And suddenly he's confined in this, in this horrible dungeon uh, far from his home. That had to be hard for him. For him. And, and you'll face trials. Now, they may not be put in prison, physical prison, although there are Christian brothers and sisters of ours who do languish in prison, even right now. Uh, but you may, be, you may be imprisoned in a body that's sick. Okay? You, 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 may, 
You may have the weight of debt hanging over your head. Uh, you, you may have the, the hostility of, of people around you, uh, people that you trusted and, and seemed to have betrayed you. I mean, there are a lot of ways that your faith is tested, isn't it? So, so John does with his doubts what you need to do with your doubt. He takes it to Jesus. He sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one? Or should we look for somebody else? I need, don't you hear John saying there, I need some encouragement, Jesus. This is a tough place. I believe, I believe, but I, I just need you to remind me. I need you to tell me again that you're the one. I, I know you are. I baptized you. I saw the manifestation of the Holy Spirit come on you, but I, but I need to be reminded. You know, that's one of the things we do when we come together for worship, isn't it? We get reminded of what we already know. We get, we get an encouragement to our faith. We read God's word, and it tells us again, yes, you've got your faith in the right place. So John's faith isn't perfect, but it's there. And you know what counts is not, not how sincere your faith is, not how eloquent you are at expressing it. It's, it's who your faith's in. That's what makes all the difference, isn't it? You can have the most sincere faith and, and, a, and be very eloquent in expressing that faith, and, but if you've got it in the wrong thing, the wrong person, it's not going to do you a bit of good. There are a lot of unbelievers out there who have a very sincere, very deep, very committed faith but it's not in Christ. And it will fail them in the end. Herod's faith is probably in his power. Okay, he's, he, he's trying to manipulate people. When you're afraid of people, you try to manipulate them. And so that's what he's trying to do. He, he's, he's dominated by his fear. Ironically, of course... He and Herodias are not afraid of the one thing they should be afraid of. And they're fearing the things they shouldn't fear. They're fearing people's opinions. What does that matter now? <laughs> what does that matter now to them? They're not fearing God. And that makes all the difference. So there's an ironic harmony here, isn't there? Fear of God is coupled with faith in God. And that makes the difference. John is a person of faith. And that enables him to persevere. To be faithful even in the worst of circumstances. And that faith sustains him because of who it's in. Because it's in Christ, who's the one worthy 
of faith. How do you know that Christ is worthy of your faith? You know he's worthy of your faith because of what he did for you. He laid down his perfect, sinless life to cover over your repulsive sins. And he took his perfect righteousness and wrapped it around you. You can be guaranteed he is worthy of your faith because of what he has done for you. Now, that doesn't mean things are going to be easy, does it? That's part of the reason why I read the ending of chapter 13, along with the beginning of chapter 14. Because in both these scenes, we see rejection, don't we? Jesus is rejected. His preaching is not accepted by his own family and friends. His own hometown rejects his preaching. And John is rejected by the political powers that be in his day. And so you can be assured that those who follow Christ will endure both of those things. Jesus never asked somebody to follow him and say, I have a wonderful plan for your life. I I will meet all your needs. Okay, I I will make you a happy person. You ever notice he never promises that to people? He says, you want to come after me? Well, let's start with death. Are you willing to pick up your cross and follow me? Are you willing to deny yourself and follow me? There's a cost to following Jesus Christ. And part of that cost is the trials that you encounter in life. Whether they be from other people, from the culture around you. But your faith in Christ is your lifeline to salvation. Because he's got the other end. John has gone to his reward. He's one of those we sang about just a few minutes ago. Those saints who persevered. They weren't perfect. They had a lot of failings. No Christian is going to be perfect in this life. But the name of the game is perseverance, isn't it? Not perfection. Elizabeth Elliot writes about a long obedience in the same direction. Just keep keep your face toward Christ. Just keep walking towards him, and he will sustain you. Jesus has won the victory, hasn't he? He's won the victory for all those who follow him. He wants you to rest in that this day. This is supposed to be a day of rest. And the rest that Christ extends to you is the deepest, most important kind of rest you can have. It's a spiritual rest. It's a coming to him and confessing your sin 
and being relieved of that burden. It's a coming to him and finding in him a loveliness and a beauty and a glory that lifts your spirit. Rest in him today. Keep resting the rest of this week too, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we may not be facing as extreme conditions as John faced or as Jesus faced and and the rejection that they under underwent, but uh, there are trials that we face. There are trials that every person here faces. Lord, help us, help us to trust in you. Uh, grow our faith in you. We we believe your promise that that when you draw us to yourself, when you when you awaken us, awaken in us faith that, that you enable us to persevere as well by your Holy Spirit. And so help us, Lord, to, to keep pressing on in the strength that you give to us. Uh, I pray that as we, as we face difficult moments in this coming week, as we have opportunities uh, for service or to speak your word, I pray that you would enable us to be ready for those and to persevere in faith. And, and I pray that you would strengthen us and give us a rest, even as we may be laboring physically or mentally. Give us a spiritual rest in you that, that knows that you love us and care for us and enable us to love and, and serve you in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.